This is Deja Vu. History repeats itself. Our country is going to hell, and people don't understand that. And Hillary Clinton doesn't have a clue. Donald Trump's ideas aren't just different. They are dangerously incoherent. Then you look at her record as Secretary of State. It's abysmal. He is not just unprepared. He is temperamentally unfit. Now, now, children, everyone play nice. As everyone knows, those were the fighting words of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, contenders in the 2016 presidential race. Pretty harsh stuff. Or is it? Welcome to Deja Vu. History repeats itself. I'm your host, Adam Monahan. In this episode, we will be exploring the election of 1828, in which challenger Andrew Jackson defeated sitting President John Quincy Adams in an election which has been deemed by some as the dirtiest in American history. In today's episode, a roundtable discussion between Daniel Feller, director of the papers of Andrew Jackson at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Sarah Martin of the Adams Papers at the Massachusetts Historical Society, and myself about what transpired in that infamous election. Well, I think before we get into the nastiness of the 1828 election, we need to talk a little bit about what happened in the election of 1824 when both these men, John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, first fought against each other for the presidency. Sarah, since your guy, John Quincy Adams, came out the victor in that 1824 election, can you give a summary of what went down and how John Quincy Adams became the sixth president of the United States? First, when you're looking at the 1824 election, you need to kind of consider uh, not just that there were two candidates. Um, it ended up being a race between the two, but it started as an open field, which was somewhat unusual for the time because John Quincy Adams as the Secretary of State would typically have been considered the heir apparent. However, um, electioneering, campaigning today, um, was not done by the candidate themselves, but by their supporters. And what emerged with the 1824 election was a vicious campaign between five candidates. John Quincy Adams, uh, who was a Secretary of State, John C. Calhoun, uh, who was the Secretary of War, Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, and William H. Crawford, the Treasury Secretary, and Andrew Jackson, who's the political outsider, but the war hero. So Daniel, why don't you tell us a little bit about Andrew Jackson in that election and also his relationship with John Quincy Adams before this campaign, before the 1824 election. What was it like between these two? Actually, and this is very surprising in light of what happened afterwards, down to the 1824 election, Jackson and Adams had really been political allies, not opponents. One of the kind of really interesting juxtapositions when you're looking at 1824 is that 1824 starts with the Adamses throwing a ball in Jackson's honor at their home in Washington, D.C. in celebration of the anniversary of the Battle of New Orleans. And so, as Dan said, they're not political rivals at this point. It's starting to become apparent that John Quincy Adams will be 
a candidate. Um, but there's no thought at that point that Jackson's going to be in the mix. To reinforce Sarah's point, by the way, early in the campaign, because it was a very long campaign, the Adams people actually made overtures to Jackson to be vice president on a ticket with Adams. That's how close the two were. Now, it was also, of course, a calculated political, political move maneuver <laughs> on the part of the Adams people. Let's get this guy out of the way. Uh, and and of calculated political move on Jackson's part to refuse because Jackson was coming to appreciate how popular he was. Okay. What's easy to lose sight of is what kind of grip he had on the American popular imagination. This was the hero of New Orleans. He was the greatest military hero the country had produced since George Washington. He was often compared to George Washington. The battle itself astonished then, and it still astonishes now, that Jackson with that ragtag army not only defeated a an army, a larger army of British veterans, but did it while inflicting about 2,000 casualties and losing literally a handful of men himself. It, it's an unbelievable victory. And he, he wore that aura ever after. And Adams knew how popular he was, too. Uh, they had both served in the Monroe administration, Quincy Adams as Secretary of State, Andrew Jackson as the administration's go-to general. And they had, in effect, collaborated uh, on a number of leading initiatives, including the acquisition of Florida, uh, where Jackson's uh, incursion into uh, Florida in 1818 paved the way for Quincy Adams finally uh, procuring a treaty with Spain that uh, ceded Florida to the United States in 1819. So while they were rivals for the presidency, it was, as Sarah said, an open field Insofar as you could trace out alliances between candidates or similarities between the candidates, the Adams and the Jackson people were really close to each other. And in some states, they actually did collaborate. They ran what were called fusion tickets of delegates uh, against the other guy. Uh, They were both running really against Crawford because Crawford represented to the extent that anybody did the straight Jeffersonian line of Virginia or in Crawford's case, Virginia-born presidents following straight Jeffersonian, Madisonian policy, the old Democratic-Republican Party. Crawford had the best claim to be the, uh, the bearer of that party. So Jackson and Adams were both challenging him. Now, Jackson was also, he was an outsider candidate. It's not to say he hadn't been in government service. In fact, he had spent most of his life in government service. But he did not have the record, or many people thought, the temperament of a statesman, which was regarded at the time as the leading qualification among those who thought qualifications were important. And, of course, Quincy Adams was a statesman above any other of the time. So their policies may have aligned a little bit. One of them is an outsider candidate. And, of course, John Quincy Adams is not an outsider. No. I mean, not only is he the son of the second president, um, but he is an established statesman. Uh, years of diplomatic service um, with four separate diplomatic appointments. He had served both terms on the Monroe administration as Secretary of State, and he was a well-known, established political figure, both with the respect that that garnered and also with the baggage that that ultimately um, came with in these two elections uh, as it would play out. What's Quincy Adams' feelings about that 1824 election? In terms of how the campaign was coming together, he really 
finds the character attacks offensive. But I think in terms of the election, you know, it was, he had been groomed for it. He had been a statesman. It was absolutely um, within his view that becoming president was a logical step for him and would have been the culmination of his public service because personally and as an Adams, public service was his call to duty. I think the expectation was he had served his country well, and he had. He was a great statesman, and he was well-respected within the established political circles. And so it wasn't untoward for him to think that this was the next logical step. However, I think he was perhaps surprised. He wasn't the heir apparent. I mean, that's why there were so many people in the mix in 1824, is because he wasn't that celebrated, and which is in part because of his personality. He was viewed as cold, and he recognized that. He, In moments of self-reflection, he would acknowledge that. When Adams became president, as Sarah said, he had a deep sense of duty. But he also knew, and in fact, to the committee that informed him officially that he had won, admitted, frankly, that probably most Americans didn't want him to be president. He said, I know this, you know. Now, Sarah, you mentioned, of course, that there was uh, multiple people involved in this. It wasn't just a two-person race. So what ultimately were the results? By the time the voting started, it was down to four candidates because John C. Calhoun had dropped out and kind of declared himself um, a vice presidential candidate. And when the votes were counted, the, there was no majority Andrew Jackson had garnered the plurality of votes both in the popular election and in electoral votes. Uh, And under the rules of the Constitution, that meant that the election would go to the House of Representatives to be determined. And it was determined in the House of Representatives by each state receiving a single vote for a candidate. So 13 votes was the magic number in the House. And it goes to the House on February 9th, and it is the top three candidates that are available uh, for choice. And that is Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, and William Crawford. And it took a single ballot, and at the end of the day, John Quincy Adams was awarded the majority of the states. So John Quincy Adams becomes the president and Andrew Jackson had the most votes. And what does he think of this outcome? Well, Jackson was enraged by the outcome (laughs) famously, but I would say he was more arranged by how he lost than the fact that he lost. Uh, What happened is, first, in the popular vote, Jackson did win a plurality, not a majority of the popular vote, uh, and of the electoral college vote. How much was that? How, How bad was he winning or how... Oh, I'd have to go look at the numbers. But he got about 40%, I think, or slightly under 40% of the popular vote. Enough that you'd, you'd be pretty upset. If- you would be pretty upset, though. This was not like a modern election. There were some states, still six states, including by far the nation's largest state, namely New York, which didn't have a popular vote at all. Uh, and so if you wanted to make it into a... Uh, modern election or or try to fill in the missing numbers so that you could uh, make a modern style conclusion about it. It's not clear that Jackson actually would have won the popular vote. Adams probably would have won New York uh, by a large margin. Okay. 
It's the first election that we have a record of any sort of vote, Yep. which makes it somewhat misleading when you're drawing conclusions yep. in, about in it. In some states, the popular vote was very, very, even though there was a popular vote, it was very small because there were some states where everybody knew who was going to win. Uh, there were very few states in which all four candidates had separate electoral tickets so that you could actually make a choice between all four. But to, when I said that Jackson was more outraged by the, by the means of the result, by how Adams won, really the election did show that Jackson has surprising popularity and popularity pretty much everywhere. The other candidates all had a regional base. Like in the general election, Adams took the six New England states and he got the majority of electoral votes in New York. That's seven states. Henry Clay took uh, some Ohio Valley states, his own home state of Kentucky. You expected that. Crawford's base was in the Southeast, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia. He carried those. Uh, I'm sorry, he did not carry North Carolina. Jackson did. That's, okay. Jackson carried not only his own home base in the Southwest, but he also carried Indiana. Uh, he also carried Pennsylvania by three to one in the popular vote over all the other candidates put together. Jackson was the only candidate whose popularity was truly national. It wasn't overwhelming, but it was genuinely national. Jackson and Adams, as I said, down to this point, were allies. And Calhoun, who Sarah mentioned, was an ally of them both. Strange as that seems in retrospect, uh, when Calhoun withdrew, he ran for vice president on both the Adams and Jackson tickets. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that Jackson would have preferred Adams for president over any of the other people if he wasn't going to get it himself. Yeah. But the way Adams got it, the way he got from the seven states he won in the general election to 13 in the House, is he took several states that had been Henry Clay states, and Henry Clay had publicly thrown his support to Adams while the election was pending in the House. And the background to this is that Jackson and Clay were rivals, and the Adams people and the Clay people had gone at it during the campaign, each one of them blackening the other's character. So to make a modern analogy, a kind of far-out analogy, uh, if Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders all of a sudden strike up an alliance, you know, people, <laughs> everyone would be saying, wait a minute, there's something foul going on here. Uh, Jackson immediately responded against Henry Clay in a famous letter by saying, now the Judas of the West has performed the contract. Jackson was convinced that he had not been beat fair and square, that there was a deal between Adams and Clay. And what made that more plausible was that down to this point, while Adams and Jackson had kind of been allies, Adams and Clay had been opponents on a whole range of issues. So all of a sudden, these political rivals who, at least their supporters, had been slinging mud at each other for this 1824 election, they're aligned and their supporters are now behind John Quincy Adams. And to this, Andrew Jackson thinks something's up. This is not right. Exactly. He calls it the corrupt bargain. The corrupt bargain. It comes into play significantly in the next election. This is it, Jackson's perception. Yeah. Uh, what had happened was that Clay, and this is in Adams's diary, came to Adams some days before the House was, was going to vote. Uh, and according to Adams, Mr. Clay uh, requested assurances on some matters of great public importance. Okay. And... We don't know what those are, but you it's know, seemingly... We don't. I, I, I do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> At least, I'm, let's say I can offer some very strong circumstantial evidence. 
Uh, I think it was about the issues of this, uh, that was called at the time internal improvements, which is federal transportation funding. And this was the issue, along with the protective tariff, on which Henry Clay had built his own candidacy. Henry Clay was much more of a policy candidate in 1824 than the others. And it was also true at that point that presidents rarely vetoed bills. The few bills they had vetoed down to this point were internal improvement bills. So it was entirely reasonable that Clay, as a Western man, which is the way he had characterized himself, would go to Adams and say something along the lines of, look, I don't like you. You know that. I've disagreed with you violently in the past. Actually, he wouldn't need to say that. They both. They knew. already knew. They already knew. <laughs> but he would say what he later said publicly. He said... Issues and, 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 and disagreements aside, you're a fit man to be president. You are a statesman. You're responsible. You're not a potential tyrant on horseback, which is what he thought Andrew Jackson was. I'm inclined not only to vote for you myself, but to persuade my Kentucky delegation and the Ohio delegation and the Missouri delegation and the Illinois delegation to support you in the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. But we in the West really, really, really want internal improvements. Will you not stand in our way? And at this point, the two men would have had a, <laughs> a meeting of souls. And the, the other piece of circumstantial evidence here is that in, the internal improvement policy, in fact, became a main thrust of the Adams administration. And during that administration and for years afterwards, Adams said, characterized his own administration by saying the great thrust of my administration was internal improvements. Okay. Uh, so from their point of view, there's no corrupt bargain. The other thing is that Adams appointed Clay Secretary of State. Yeah, so that could uh, look kind of shady. It, 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 it looked shady. <laughs> I, I've always thought it was ingenious of the Jacksonians to make it look dirty to accuse Adams and Clay of having a bargain to do something which was the most logical and obvious thing for them to do anyway. Yeah. It was a political alliance. It's a political it alliance. It was spun very but well Henry, by the Jackson camp. And it's not like Henry Clay wasn't uh, qualified for it any wasn't, of it. That's right. Henry Clay was uh, greatly interested in diplomatic affairs, particularly Latin American affairs. He had been part of the negotiating team at the end of war, the War of 1812. He had wanted to be Secretary of State under Monroe. <laughs> so it, it wasn't like he was wasn't the most obvious man this for the wasn't job. out from left field so he <laughs> right. was qualified to be it uh john quincy adams was even though that they had been rivals he can surely understand this person could be could help the uh the country and he does it so legitimately on both sides from adams and clay's point of view it looks like not a corrupt bargain but an agreement to pursue the best interests of the country as they both saw them and yet Again, from Jackson's point of view, this looks like, you know, an impossible alliance. Do you know, what are these two guys? Uh, <laughs> and, and so the Jackson people are convinced of a corrupt bargain. And really, the 1828 campaign starts the day after Adams is elected by the House of Representatives. So let's get into that. Where does Jackson go right after 1824? Is he still in office somewhere? He was during the election a uh, United States senator. Tennessee legislature had sent him to the Senate to fill out a short term. And then he went home which is what 
presidential candidates, unless they were holding public office, usually did. And he spent the majority of the next almost four years uh, at home coordinating a presidential campaign. Uh, but at the time, and I'm, this is important to note, presidential candidates, first, they did not announce themselves as candidates. They waited to be nominated or called or introduced into the conversation. They usually accepted the nomination, if they did formally accept it at all, with a great show of reluctance and diffidence. You know, well, it's not my idea, but if the people call me. That's highly unlike what we experience today. It is, it's, it's a precedent set by George Washington, you know, who accepted the presidency with some show of reluctance and served two terms and then went home. Uh, and, and the idea behind it, really, it goes back to the, the American Revolution and the Constitution. Americans had been steeped in fear of too much executive power. And as students of, as they put it, the history of republics, ancient and modern, the thing they thought they had learned by looking at the history of ancient Greece and ancient Rome and modern France is that the death of a republic is a man with too much ambition, uh, a potential tyrant, especially one wearing military laurels. Okay, which and, speaks and this, to... this was Clay, Henry Clay's objection to Andrew Jackson. He said he's a mere military chieftain. Mm-hmm. And we know what happens from Julius Caesar to Napoleon Bonaparte when mere military chieftains come, you know, to the head of a, of a republic. And that's sort of the opinion of the establishment. So 1824, he goes home and he has to, quote unquote, wait until he's called upon, until the public wants him to run again. But of course, he would expect that's going to happen, and he's trying to make that happen, right? Yes. This expectation that people would not push themselves on the public was strong enough that really modern campaigning, where you go out and kiss as many babies and shake as many hands and greet as many people uh, as you can, partly because of transportation, but, but partly because of this idea that that's dirty. Modern campaign and that sort didn't really start until the late, the end of the 19th century, well after this. So Jackson, like other candidates before him, like other candidates after him, stayed home and waited for their country's call. But of course, it was also at the same time that this was a kind of prescription you had to follow. It was also, I think everybody knew, as certainly as, as early as 1828, that you didn't get to be president unless you kind of wanted it. <laughs> okay. Well, so, and I would actually argue, if you read John Quincy Adams's diary, even earlier, he recognized the writing on the wall. And he's watching as early as early 1826, January 1826. So J- Jackson knew he was running, as I said, from the day after he, he the, lost. So it. he loses 1824. He knows right away, but he has to at least, it has to go through the same processes, that same, the public has yep. to call, but that if, happens quick. If, if there's one trigger event, and there really isn't one, but if, if you had to pick one, I would say it was in December 1825. And that was when the new Congress convened. Congress in those days only sat for a few months out of the year. And it had been out of session from March 3rd all the way till December. And Quincy Adams delivered his first annual message, what today we call the State of the Union message. Okay. And Adams used that message to lay out a very bold plan, a really ambitious, glittering, you might say, plan of national improvement under the fostering benevolent care of the national government. And he kind of flung down a challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, we are the freest people on earth because we're the freest people on earth. We are enabled to do things that 
monarchies and aristocratic governments can't do. Therefore, we have, you might say, a divine injunction to do those things. Uh, And it would be recreant to our responsibilities if we do not use the powers of a free people through their own freely elected government to pursue not only economic development, but arts, sciences, humanities, culture, you know, to really elevate the level of the country. Within this speech, he advocated for a national university. He advocated for the establishment of observatories. And he advocated for a naval college. I mean, these were high-level improvements that he was advocating. And it was bold. It it was bold. And it was not well-received. There were a lot of people who were suspicious of him because he was the son of old John Adams. And he had been a Federalist himself as, as a young man. So the question is, is he really a Jeffersonian? Or is he a Federalist in, in you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing? And part of the boldest part of it was uh, having laid out this ambitious plans. So this is internal improvements on steroids. Yeah. This goes way beyond <laughs> roads and canals. Uh, and, and at one point, he kind of rhetorically said, if we don't seize this opportunity, what will be our excuse? That we have been, and this was his phrase, palsied by the will of our constituents. This is a rather bold thing for a minority president to say, you know, is that congressmen should not feel palsied by the will of their constituents. So an awful lot of people who might conceivably have reconciled themselves to Adams looked and said, my God, we've got another Federalist in the White House. Just as we have just gone through a recreation of 1796, we have to, re- we have, to have another 1800, uh, which is when Jefferson you know, overthrew the first Adams. Yeah. And all those people, after some maneuvering and some hesitation on some their parts, but they all line up behind Jackson, not because they're all enthralled with Jackson, but because Jackson's the the alternative. So it's around this policy that John Quincy Adams is trying to introduce Mm -hmm. that there's a rally around Andrew Jackson has to be a candidate in this next election, but there's no like official announcement. He doesn't say like you would today, I'm running for president. It just becomes, he has a supporting crowd behind him, so it would be known. Correct. Tennessee legislature had nominated him, which is, a, you know, an ad hoc procedure. Yes, it was, no, it was known he was, he was running. Let, let me add that there, you still could, you could campaign. You just didn't have to look like you were campaigning. And both Adams and Jackson did things in the way of public appearances. And Adams was unfortunately just really bad at it. Uh, (laughs) To contrast two things, Uh, in 1828, there was a, uh, January, there was a gigantic celebration of the Battle of New Orleans. Uh, It was kind of the first big battle reenactment in American history, down on the battlefield. Uh, And it was to celebrate the 13th anniversary of the battle, which had been fought on January 8th, 1815. Now, why are you doing this on the 13th anniversary? You know, we don't normally celebrate 13th anniversaries <laughs> as opposed to 5th or 10th or 50th. Well, yeah, but this is 1828 and it's an election year. And it just so happens that the hero of that battle is running for president. It, it just so happens. <laughs> just so happens. And it just so happens that he's invited uh, and he accepted. And that meant taking a long trip down to New Orleans on a steamboat that would stop at a lot of places where you could meet crowds. Uh, And then when they got to New Orleans, there was several days of ceremonies, you know, and groups of veterans uh, would form and address Jackson and he would answer. And it's all about the, the, the 
commemorating the battle and honoring the battle. The presidential election is never mentioned, but what it does do is it reminds everybody in the country because the whole thing was heavily publicized and that was the idea. Adams made several public appearances during the 1828 campaign and they had a way of not working. Uh, one of them, for example, was at a commemorative uh, a dinner. I can't remember what the occasion was, but uh, when you attended a public dinner, if you were toasted, especially if you were prominent, you were expected to get up and, and, and say something and give a toast yourself. So Adams got up at this, at this uh, dinner and offered the toast, and I think I can get this right from memory, Ebony and Topaz. The British general's coat of arms and the American marksman who gave it to him. And everybody's going, what? <laughs> and then, and this is in published newspaper reports, so we know what happens. And then there's kind of a pause, and Adam, then Adam says, I see you were somewhat perplexed. He had to explain the toast. It Can was you a, explain it to me, Sarah? <laughs> it was a reference to Voltaire. And oh. so he's making this you know, intellectual reference that is lost on the group to which he's speaking. And it just played into some of the attacks that were being made on him and where he's being accused of being an elitist. And the British general was was General, I think Robert was his first name, Ross, who had been shot by an American marksman that the... Uh, uh, in the defense of Baltimore in the War of 1812. So this is a patriotic toast honoring an American, you know, military accomplishment. But you managed to put it in such terms that... It was lost on his that, crowd. That, that, it's that it lost on me, so I... Well, <laughs> I mean, I think he also, you know, there's examples... You, Dan puts a really good one, you know. You see this image of Jackson on the steamboat heading down the Mississippi, and John Quincy Adams... As the sitting president, as he's traveling back and forth to Massachusetts, is in a situation where, as you travel through frequently, there are receptions, um, parades, and military salutes of those sorts of things to the sitting president. And he certainly doesn't capitalize on those opportunities. A lot of what was going on in both camps is being done in order to be publicized via the newspapers. It's a media, media campaign with a different medium than today. So the important thing about, about the, not only the New Orleans trip, but the ebony and topaz is that it gets in the papers all over the country. Adams became a figure of ridicule. And once you become a figure of ridicule, it's hard to get yourself out from under that. Uh, the Jacksonians made fun of the ebony and topaz thing. Uh, they started calling the Adams people the Ebonites. Uh, they made fun of his first annual message. Uh, he had referred to uh, astronomical exploratory uh, observatories, I'm sorry, as lighthouses of the skies. Uh, the Jacksonians turned that into lighthouses in the skies and made fun of that. There was another Adams episode, the the groundbreaking for the CNO Canal. See, but uh, that's actually a, that's one of the I mean probably one of the few popular successes for Adams. Yep. In uh, that he goes, I mean his internal improvement plan. This is one of the successes. There, the CNO Canal is uh, being dedicated, and he's there for the groundbreaking. And you know he goes to break the ground and hits a tree stump and has no success in, I think, was probably personal frustration, takes off his coat, hands it to somebody and digs in. And it's one of those humanizing moments. And I think that, you know, everybody, even now, you could relate to that. 
though the Jacksonians made fun of that one too. Of that course, it's they reported did. in the Adams newspapers. You know, this this shows that that he's willing to throw off his coat and dig in. Yeah, he hits the root, throws off his coat triumphantly. Uh, sinks the shovel and digs up the root, and then the Jackson people say, well, he must have hit a Jackson root. Uh, this is in the Jackson newspapers, and then the Adams people come back and say, yeah, but look how he dug it up. And the sense of going out and saying, I, wanted to, I want to be president. Jackson did not himself overtly campaign. Privately, we know, and the Jackson papers reveal this, uh, while he left all the political alliances and the dodging of policy, which is basically what his campaign did, <laughs> the Adams and, and Clay people are trying to make this campaign kind of a policy referendum, and the Jackson people did everything they could to avoid that. The one aspect of the campaign that Jackson was involved in up to his eyeballs was defending himself against personal attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of these were in the newspapers, and the Jacksonians were pumping out responses to them which we know many of them were actually written by Jackson uh, and, and published anonymously, you know. Uh, but that was a part of the campaign in which Jackson was, was personally invested. So now we're getting into why this is one of the dirtiest elections in history, or quote-unquote the dirtiest mm-hmm. elections in history. It's not actual candidates like they would nowadays yelling at each other, calling names, but their supporters... What is some of the nastiness that is happening? What are what are the uh, what's the mud slung at Andrew Jackson? Well, that's a good question, and and we pointy-headed historians are always trying to define terms. And, and the question I'd raise is: Is it mud slinging if they accuse you of things which are basically true? <laughs> <laughs> the the primary charge against Jackson was that his entire history showed him to be a violent man. Uh, at times out of control, violent in his personal life. Uh, He'd killed a man in a duel. He had been willing to fight many more duels. We actually only know of one duel that he actually fought, but he had been issuing challenges left and right at various times in his career. Uh, He had fought in a street brawl in Nashville that was something right out of gunfight at the OK Corral, uh, in which he took two bullets at at point-blank range, uh, one of which was still in his body. He had demonstrated a particular contempt on several occasions for civilian authority. He had disobeyed orders. He had defied orders. He had instructed his own officers not to obey office orders from anybody in the chain of command, including the president of the United States, except him. And as a general, he'd been violent there too. He seemed to have a, took a malicious pleasure in shooting his own soldiers. The coffin handbill. The coffin handbill. The coffin handbill, which was a a handbill or a poster produced by a Philadelphia newspaper editor named John Binns. And it's called the Coffin Handbill because across the top of it are the silhouettes of six coffins. It's a very striking handbill. And with right underneath them, names uh, of the people, uh, all of whom were militiamen who Jackson had, under Jackson's command, who he had had shot uh, at one time or another. And the, the purport of the Coffin Handbill is that Jackson was a bloodthirsty man, really a murderer uh, of his own troops, viciously. A 19-year-old sentry falls asleep on duty one day and you have him shot for it. The question is, do you want this guy to be president? And that's the main thrust of the Adams 
charges. And I must say that, again, these charges were all based on real-life incidents. You did not have to exaggerate Jackson's personal or uh, professional career to make him out as a, uh, a dangerous man, a violent man, a possibly, in the language they would have used, deranged man. Okay, so he had a lot of very non-presidential qualities about him. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So these are things from John Quincy Adams supporters, not John Quincy Adams, because... Well, I mean, I think you have to... It's it's not a vacuum either. I mean, this is... There are lots of accusations that are being lobbied at John Quincy Adams. The the most significant and kind of the juiciest um, story that comes out during the election is that John Quincy Adams had procured a mistress for the Tsar of Russia while he was serving as the minister to Russia. And he writes he he writes in his diary of how he finds out about it. You know, a member of Congress comes and tells him, like, this is what's circulating about you now. And he relates the story that basically um, the story circulating is that he had a beautiful woman from his household had been offered to the czar in return for political favors. And in fact, the truth behind the story was that he did have a very attractive young woman as part of his household. Her name was Martha Godfrey, and she served both as a chambermaid to Louisa Catherine Adams and a nurse to their young child, Charles Francis Adams. And she had accompanied them in a letter home that she wrote, uh, she describes sort of the extracurricular activities of the czar, kind of reporting gossip about court life in Russia. Okay. In a standard practice, the letter was opened and it was read by the czar. It was also read by the czar's wife. And they then had an interest in seeing who this person was. The woman who's writing home. Yes. So then she meets the czar and his wife? Well, it was done, no, a servant would not meet the royal family. And so what happens is Charles Francis Adams is invited to visit uh, one of the princesses. And while he is there because he is accompanied by the nurse, because he is a young child, the emperor and the empress stop by for a visit. So they stop by so they can see who wrote this letter, and that's it. Exactly. And this is how somehow translated into John Quincy Adams is a pimp. Yes. (laughs) But by one... uh, Extreme Jacksonian editor. What what, What did they write? Pretty much that he would, that, that he that Adams had pimped for the czar, right? Uh, and and had done so in return for political favors. Ah. I mean, that was it was it was that. Bold. By the way, Jackson also privately, completely disowned uh, Isaac Hill. That was the newspaper editor who made made the accusation against Adams. Did he come out in public and say that? 
Uh, no. And, and when he became president, he appointed Isaac Hill second controller of the Treasury, which was an important job. And then when the Senate rejected him, uh, the good legislature of New Hampshire, which by that time was solidly Democratic, uh, or Jacksonian rather, uh, elected Isaac Hill to the Senate. Okay. The story against Adams and some of the famous lurid stories about Jackson and Rachel, which were originally floated by one Cincinnati newspaper editor. These are the things that when, when I think today, when people say, oh, dirtiest campaign, these are the things that immediately come to mind. Uh, to put it simply, the allegation was that Jackson had married another man's wife. And technically, that was true. Back in Nashville, back in the early 1790s, when Jackson was a young man, he had befriended Rachel Donaldson Robards. And her first husband, a guy named Robards, he was an abusive and jealous husband, probably beat her. Uh, Jackson interceded in her defense. Uh, over a period of time, what happened is Robarts went back to Kentucky, where he had come from. And shortly after that, Jackson and Rachel began to show up in, in local notices as Mr. and Mrs. Jackson. Were they married? No. Uh, <laughs> but, but let's say they might as well have been married. This is frontier Nashville. Uh, getting a legal divorce at that time was extremely difficult. You had to get a special act passed through the legislature. There was no general, you know, it was not an administrative matter. You had to get a special law passed to, to authorize you to get a divorce, and you usually had to show cause for it. The fact was that Robards was gone. The marriage was broken. They were, in effect, divorced. He wasn't coming back. And so Andrew and Rachel began to live as, as man and wife and call themselves man and wife, and, and they weren't at all shunned. When was it before the when did Andrew Jackson meet his wife and that they, they hooked up together? How, like, what years were those? We're, we're back in the early 1790s. This oh. is all back in the early 1790s. It's an old story. So this is like a non-issue, what we would perceive as a non-issue, but now we get to the 1820s, there's an election coming. A, yeah, in the 1820s, it doesn't look so good. Uh, and so, and so the, the Adams people, some of them, or people talk in his behalf, in particular a Cincinnati newspaper editor named Charles Hammond, said Jackson's a, a, a Rachel's a bigamist and Jackson's a wife stealer. Ah. But the, the, the bottom line question is how much did this actually affect the campaign? The story about Andrew and Rachel and the story about, about Quincy Adams and the, uh, the girl for the czar, they're off on the margins. How much play did it even get back then? Now, actually, at the time, this will surprise people because this is what we remember, if we yeah. remember anything. Very, very little. You know, it's kind of lurid. It's uh, it's at the extreme of the campaign. Well, I think, as Dan said, they they were a relatively minor, perhaps a blip. I mean, well, when, when we talk about what were the charges against Adams, we don't want to miss the central charge uh, or the two central charges. One of them is that he's a Federalist or a monarchist, mm -hmm. and the other one is the corrupt bargain. And neither of these are, in the literal sense of the word, sexy. Uh, but this is really the main accusation against Adams, is that he and Clay have stolen the presidency. And that one was harped on over and over uh, by the Jacksonians. The Jacksonians then, and in fact for years after 1828, uh, referred to the Adams-Clay alliance as the coalition, a derogatory term, the coalition. How could these two possibly uh, unite two men who seemingly have nothing in common. And what they both have in common is, is this you know, willingness to, to uh, 
corruptly deal themselves in, into, into power. That's the main accusation against Adams. Let's get into the results of that 1828 election. Well, the result of the election was a sweeping victory for Jackson. He carried all the southern states. He carried all the western states. Uh, the what you might call the Henry Clay states, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, Missouri. Jackson carried all of those. And he also carried New York and Pennsylvania. So John Quincy Adams loses. I'll let you, Sarah. Why do you think it is? You don't think it's allegations that he was a pimp or it probably didn't help. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that was a very minor, uh, had a very minor impact. I think he lost because John Quincy Adams was out of his era to a certain extent. I think he was holding to a political ideal that was no longer current. And I think he was in many ways unwilling to lower himself as he would have believed it to engage the political machine that this election dictated. Uh, In addition to that, I think that... um, His personality certainly couldn't compete with the popular kind of more gregarious nature of Jackson, and that held more popular appeal to a broader electorate. You know, more people could vote in this election than at any previous time. So it really is a popular referendum, and John Quincy Adams could not compete with Andrew Jackson on that front. Well, I would agree entirely with what Sarah said. And and let's emphasize again the difference between this and 1824. Uh, The 1824 election is not a great popular referendum between two candidates. The 1828 election was. And it was hard fought pretty much everywhere. Uh, And all those states, including New York, that did not have a popular vote in 1824 did in 1828. Looking at today's election, where do you stand in terms of how dirty this 1828 election is and now do you do you think this is deja vu is this history repeating itself that's a tough question and again it depends upon what we mean by dirty Uh, making personal accusations against candidates was brought to a higher level in 1828 than it had been earlier it did not start in 1828 but it was brought to a higher level it still did not extend to the level of candidates publicly saying themselves insulting things about other candidates. I don't regard it as a particularly dirty campaign, again, since the accusations that were most powerful, that carried the most weight, uh, were not, you know, they weren't salacious, uh, and they weren't necessarily false. Let me say one thing about a question that's kind of behind the question. We've seen recently a number of analogies in the New York Times and elsewhere between Andrew Jackson and Donald Trump. And personally, I think the two men had absolutely nothing in common whatsoever. They're completely different personality types. Jackson was the first outsider candidate. Uh, He was the first candidate of whom you look at him and your immediate reaction, if you are part of the political establishment, is this man's not qualified to be president. And you could say that there is a similarity there. I'd emphasize that there have been a whole lot of outsider candidates. Jackson, you might say, set the template for running against Washington, for running on the grounds that that the political system is corrupt and I'm going to clean it out. And 
we've all heard the phrase, you know, the mess in Washington. Uh, if if there was a, an I-495 beltway in Washington, Jackson would have been describing, or Jackson's supporters would have been describing Adams and, and Clay as inside the beltway politicians. But you again, you can make that comparison between Jackson and Trump, but that fits a whole lot of other candidacies, uh, including people who have been reelected, including Ronald Reagan and including Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. uh, ran as challengers to the mess in Washington as, as outside the establishment candidates, even Bill Clinton. Uh, so it's, that's kind of a standard template. Uh, one big difference between Trump and Jackson is what kind of outsider you are. As I said earlier, Jackson did not have the, uh, the vita, the resume, uh, the record, apparently the temperament of a statesman. But he had held just about every government office at one time or another that it's possible to hold. Sarah, where do you stand in this election? I certainly think you can draw parallels. I think that, you know, as Dan accurately summarized, you know, the 1828 election sees a shift in kind of how personal character comes into the electioneering. Um, Certainly that has been forefront this time around. But I think that it's hard to compare in many ways because you're talking about nearly 200 years separation and politics has changed, you know, the same way that politics in the 1820s were going through an evolution and simply the way that the president was being chosen was fundamentally changing at that point. There are parallels from then in that there was a shift in the political environment in the election of 1828, just like in this current election cycle, there seems to be a strange shift uh, towards things that, that we haven't seen in previous elections. Fair? Yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was the first, you might say, full-throated newspaper campaign, and now we're in the first full-throated Twitter campaign. So there you have it, a history lesson about the so-called dirtiest election in American history. What do you think about it? Is this 2016 election deja vu? Is history repeating itself? Email me at historyrepeatsitselfpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at admonahan and share your thoughts. I'm Adam Monahan. Thanks to all who have listened. Have a good one.